0: Acts twenty one verse one and when they had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unloaded was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and there all with wives and children accompanied us, we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Menason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place." he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers they stopped beating Paul then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains he inquired who he was and what he had done some of the crowd were shouting one thing some another And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought back into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought to the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great, hu- and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. Father, I pray that again you would show us wonderful things from your word. Would you open our eyes? Would you open our hearts? Would you instruct us today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I know it's a bit of a cliffhanger, but that's where the chapter stops, and we will pick up there next week, so stay tuned. But uh, there's a lot to deal with in this chapter, and if you, uh, as you noticed, when we went through it, there's um, some differing of opinions as people thought according what was the will of God for Paul, was he to go to Jerusalem or not. I think most Christians, it's safe to say, we would like to know what God's will is. There are books written on knowing God's will. There are conferences. There are uh, endless sermons, I would guess, on how to know God's will. And when it comes to knowing God's will, it's important. I remember there are times in my life where I felt like it was much more important. As a young adult, I felt like it was very important because there's so many decisions you're making as a young adult. In what direction are you going to go? What job are you going to take? Who are you going to marry? Are you going to marry? Where are you going to go to school? Are you, you know, all of these questions. What is God's will for my life? And I think at that time, I thought about things a lot more linearly in terms of if A was God's will, then B was wrong and vice versa. But there's much more to God's will than simply knowing the direction in which to go, although I think that that's what we're most concerned with. The Scripture has a lot to say about what God's will is for us. Last week, in preparation for the Lord's Supper, we read the Ten Commandments. And I can say to you today, unequivocally, that that is God's will for you, that we are not to lie or to cheat or to steal, that we are to worship God alone and to honor His name. God's moral law makes it very clear what His expectations are for us. Further, we read verses in Scripture like 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I can say to you today that it is God's will for your sanctification for your growth in Christ. I can say that it is God's will that you give thanks in all circumstances. And as I say that, I am saying that back to myself because I realize it's much easier to say that than to do it, especially when life is not going the way that you want. Really, Lord? Give thanks in all circumstances? Understanding what pleases God in terms of his moral law, his expectation for us is very clear. There's really no argument about knowing God's will for us in that regard. But I think what most of us wrestle with and are concerned about is, again, the questions of which way to go. What car to buy, what house to buy, what job to take. Those are the questions that we wrestle with. And God has given us quite a, quite a bit about wisdom in Scripture. And I think he uses the wisdom of other believers instructing us in our lives. But what we see in this passage in Acts is not everybody always agrees. They certainly didn't about whether Paul should go to Jerusalem or not. And so, what do we do when we sense conflicting direction or other believers give us conflicting advice? How do we determine God's will? Well, in the first section that we look at here, these first 16 verses, there are three cautions that are given to Paul or about Paul concerning going to Jerusalem. He's already on the journey. He's already heading in this direction. We've seen this in the previous chapters that he was determined to go there. And it's hard not to miss the parallel that exists between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and the journey that Jesus made to Jerusalem. There were similar plots by the Jews... There was the handing over to the Gentiles in both cases. There were similar predictions of harm. And even with those predictions, there was a similar determination in the face of those predictions. And there was a holy commitment to the will of the Father. Jesus would pray the night before his crucifixion, Let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Upon reaching the region of Syria, Paul and his companions arrive in the city of Tyre, and they go there, and they find the other believers, and they stay for a week, and they connect with them. And it was during this week, Luke writes, Luke is with them still. You notice he's still using the we language, so Luke is here with them during this time. He says, through the Spirit, in verse 4, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And in this, we see the beginning of this conflict. The believers were warning him, don't go. And yet we've already seen that Paul, in the Spirit, was determined to go. In Acts 19, if you remember a few weeks ago, verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also go to Rome. And as we know, as we read in the text, Paul does make it to Jerusalem. The interesting thing is, it is this arriving in Jerusalem that begins the domino effect that takes him to Rome, not as a free man, but a man under arrest. In Acts 20, last week, we read, And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, Paul says, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul was not naive about what was going to happen. He didn't know all the details, but he certainly wasn't unaware. And even with this first caution by these other believers, we see that what is guiding Paul, though, is the will of God. The life of John Patton comes to mind. As I look at this passage, I couldn't help but think of this missionary who went to the New Hebrides, now called Vanuatu, the South Pacific Islands that were filled with cannibals. The interesting thing about John Patton is that his predecessors who went before him were killed and eaten by the cannibals. And John Patton went anyway. It's interesting, when he was warned by another believer A man named Mr. Dixon, he said to Patton, The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. wasn't necessarily the most gracious response, but it certainly took guts. Not only to say that, but to actually believe it. And much like the warnings of those at Tyre to Paul, it was dangerous. Paul went anyway. He sensed the call and he faced the danger. In verse 11, we see the second caution. We see that Paul went on next to Caesarea in verse 8. They connect, reconnect rather with Philip the evangelist. You remember him from earlier on in, in Acts. And Agabus shows up. You remember him. He was the prophet that warned of the famine that would come to the region. Well, he comes down from Judea and reenacts, or not reenacts, but acts out, rather, the prophecy that he's giving to Paul, much like we see in the Old Testament prophets. In verse 11, And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Note that the prophecy was from The Holy Spirit. But the message was an order not not to go. It was a message of what would happen when he would go. So Paul is not disobeying God. But rather God in his mercy is telling Paul what he is about to face. Again, the life of another missionary comes to mind. Jim Elliott and the four missionaries who went to Ecuador to reach the Aka people. They knew it was dangerous and they paid with their lives. They died at the hands of these people. And yet, Jim wrote these words in his journal, words we've all heard before. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And similarly, Paul knew what was at stake in his journey. And he knew it wasn't worth holding on to his life or his health for the sake of Christ. And then the third caution comes following that. After Agabus gives the prediction, this time it comes not only from the people around him in Caesarea, but from Luke and from Paul's ministry colleagues. These are his brothers who have traveled with him on all these missionary journeys, and now they're concerned, and they're worried, and they're saying to Paul, don't go. In verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people then urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. They were concerned, and rightly so. But look at Paul's response in verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul didn't know. He knew he was going to be bound. Agabus made that clear. But he didn't know what that would lead to, if he would live or die. And yet, he continued. And a third missionary comes to mind, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim, who, following his death and the death of the four others, went back to the same people to carry the message of the gospel. She went back to the people who killed her husband to take the message of Christ. For the name of the Lord Jesus, she was willing to go back to face danger and even die. And God used her like he used John Patton. And many came to saving faith. In the life of Paul and with each of these examples we considered, the personal preferences of these individuals were not what drove them to do these things. This wasn't about what they wanted. And so when it comes to determining God's will for our lives, it's not about our preferences, but rather their motivation was the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was his name, it was his glory that motivated them and empowered them to do difficult things. And so as we seek God's will in our own lives, yes, the wisdom of other believers is invaluable. The wisdom of God's word guides us, But the glory of God is preeminent. That is what is to direct our steps. So how do we discern this? Well, Paul would write in Romans 12 some helpful words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of the mind according to God's word. And this is because God's will is always in line with Scripture. If you sense a leading to do something that is contrary to Scripture, that is not the Holy Spirit. We are to know God's Word. We are to do more than know the the information and have an understanding of the words, but we're to allow it to transform our hearts and our minds. And this requires not only reading it, but studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, knowing it, letting it nourish our hearts. And our minds. Let me say one more thing about the will of God. 1 John 2.17 states, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. What was John saying? Well, he explains a few verses further down. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. God's will is that you believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and that you love one another. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. But Christian, don't miss the second part of the verse. What is God's will for you? To love one another. There's something to meditate on. There's something to let simmer around. Just like I can say, give thanks in all circumstances. It's an easy thing to say. It's a lot harder to do so is it, love one another. Because it doesn't say, love those who love you, or love those who are easy, or love those who you like, or have things in common with. But it says, love one another, without exceptions. Well, Paul is now in Jerusalem, and unsurprisingly, he goes up to the elders to give them a report. James is the head of the church, really, by de facto. The elders are there. And um, he goes up and gives them a report, and they're happy. They rejoice. They're glad to hear what has happened. When they heard it, they glorified God, verse 20 says. But then comes something surprising. They were worried for Paul, and again, rightly so. But their concern was over, you could call it a false accusation, or if we had more time to unpack it, we could really learn that what they were saying had some element of truth to it, but it was a clear misunderstanding of what Paul was teaching. Paul was not teaching that believers needed to be circumcised or walk according to our customs, as verse 21 said. But what's interesting is that instead of correcting the misunderstandings of these Jewish background believers, the leaders kind of dumped everything off on Paul and said, in in essence, you need to fix this, and we've got a suggestion and an idea for a way for you to do it. To show that you keep our customs, we've got four guys here under a Nazarite vow, and at the end of this vow, they're supposed to go have their heads shaved. So you're going to pay for that. You're going to take them. Everybody's going to see it because it all happens in the temple, and they're, they're going to know that you keep the customs. Well, Luke doesn't tell us what their motivation was, other than, in a sense, protecting Paul. And he doesn't tell us what Paul was thinking either in terms of why he followed this advice. I mean, certainly if it was an effort to add to the work of Christ, then both would have been wrong in doing this. But there's no evidence of this given, and we certainly have never seen Paul teach or instruct. If anything, it's the very opposite of everything that Paul ever taught and instructed. And so rather, it seems to be an attempt to be at peace among all men and be all things to all men. This was what Paul was doing. He was a Jew, after all, and there was nothing problematic with him following the customs of his people. In terms of what he meant and what his heart motive was, we don't know. But look, it didn't matter. What were the people going to do? And this is, a, this, is a, this is a huge thing that we need to understand according to God's will. God's will was for, for Paul to go and to suffer and to be arrested. So even though he did follow the custom, as was the suggestion of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, he was still arrested and beaten and charged the efforts of James and the elders wouldn't have mattered. These Jews from Asia were probably ones from Ephesus. They recognized Trophimus, who was an Ephesian. Uh, Remember, they were also stirring up problems. They were prone to riots. Remember the riot in Ephesus? Well, they did the same thing here in Jerusalem. And in verse 27, they laid hands on Paul, and they accused him of teaching against the law and against the temple. And they also accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was an offense punishable by death. So the riot grew and they dragged Paul out of the temple. The guards of the temple immediately closed the doors. They wanted the Romans to deal with this and they wanted to keep all of them out. And so that's what it happened. They were seeking to kill Paul. Verse 31 says... This wasn't just an angry mob, this was a murderous mob that wanted to snuff his life out. And so the Roman tribune sees the commotion, he takes Paul into custody, and seeing him first as the instigator and not as the victim, assumes he's this Egyptian guy that has come back from the wilderness who caused the riot. And much like the Ephesian riot, no one knew why they were rioting. You remember that? It happens again in verse 34 when they asked, what's the problem here? Some people said one thing and some people said another. So the tribune took Paul away to the barracks to sort things out as the crowd shouted away with him. And like I said, the story continues next week. But note this. Even though Paul's friends had the best of intentions to protect him, nothing could stop God's plan, his predetermined will. And Paul knew this knowing that walking into this danger could lead, possibly, to death. But Paul followed the way of a Savior, Jesus. Jesus also was taken and accused by a mob in Jerusalem. He was also handed over to Romans, beaten, put in chains. And yet, before any of it happened, he knew it was going to happen. In Luke's gospel, he told his disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And Jesus went anyway. He went knowing he would die. He went knowing that he would do the will of the Father. And even at the end, he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is the key to understanding God's will for our lives. That whatever comes our way, that we not only in all circumstances give thanks, but we receive everything as from the Lord, and we say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And we can pray this with joy, and with thankfulness, and with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. We can submit to the Father's will no matter how difficult because Jesus submitted to the Father's will doing the most difficult thing possible. He shouldn't have died. He's the one man who ever lived who shouldn't have died. Romans 3 says, the wages of sin is death and yet Jesus never sinned. But he willingly walked to his death for you and for me. And this new covenant that was established by His blood, has allowed the way for you and me to come in. And that's what we celebrate at this table today. This new covenant brought about the complete payment for our sin. No more sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. And this table points back to the death of Christ as He announced it is finished. But this table also is for us today in that it nourishes us. It feeds us. God uses this to strengthen us. Tangible means, real means that we take and we put in our mouths and we remember what Christ has done for us, is doing for us, and yet the table points forward as well in what he will do for us. Because a table much bigger than this one is coming. A table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. For all those who are in Christ, we will one day come to this. Everything will be made right, sin will be no more, death will be killed, and you and I will rejoice and proclaim, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed rejoice because of what Christ has done for us, and as we walk through this life and we... Lord, desire to know your will for our lives. Thank you that we don't have to guess what your will is in terms of your moral expectation for us. But as we make decisions, Lord, I pray that our minds would be transformed by your word, that we would be able to determine your good and acceptable will. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk with an attitude of not my will, but yours be done, that we would submit to your good hand at work in our lives. And trust you, giving thanks in all circumstances, knowing that this is your will for us. And Lord, as hard as these things are to put into practice at times, may this table today remind and refresh us that your will for us is good. Because you are good. It is who you are. And your character doesn't change. You're immutable. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you are indeed working out all things together for good, for your glory, for our good. May this table remind and refresh us of that today. Would you do that work in our hearts? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.